We turn in God's Word this morning to the book of Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Before we read God's Word this morning, I know that some of you, perhaps, uh, throughout this week, at least a couple of you, uh, have been wondering about my math skills. Uh, I, I apologize for uh, conjectures about the unclean animals without providing you some sufficient background as to uh, the statements I made in regards to that. I, I should have spent more time at least giving you the rationale. Probably would have been better not going down the avenue at all uh, upon second thought and second consideration. Uh, I will affirm with the rest of you that uh, the plain reading of the text, there's two unclean and either seven or 14 of the clean animals. So two unclean, seven, 14. But uh, yeah, if you want to talk about that someday, we can do so. We're in Genesis chapter 22. We're still uh, on our series on creatures of the Bible. And it's not that we're skipping from Genesis 9 to 22 and there's no information about creatures of the Bible in between. On the back of the sermon outline, I uh, gave you kind of some general uh, chapters and verses where creatures are mentioned. Uh, some of those are quite significant. Other of them are minor notes that are made. For the hunters, I included Nimrod uh, as well. But... Uh, one cannot touch upon every single one of these. I know one of you is in now in the high 30s as you reflect upon it. That number probably will continue to grow as you think about uh, these various passages. Certainly as we come to Genesis chapter 22, um, we see this at play once again. And, and I want you to understand, it, it's not that, it, the, the point of this is that it is through these creatures that God is often displaying glorious truths. I mean, who cannot see the picture in the story of the flood of God's grace, of God's mercy? Who cannot see Christ as the one who is indeed the ruler of all creation? At Presbytery we, this past Friday, we had a young man, Nick Thompson, uh, uh, become a licentiate in our Presbytery, and he preached on Psalm 8. And uh, his point in Psalm 8 is what do we see Christ being? But the one who has dominion over all of God's creatures. Once again, a beautiful picture of the rule and reign of Christ and the totality of that reign. This morning, Genesis chapter 22. Let's hear God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood on the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again ask for God's blessing upon it. Father, Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your word. And as we study the creatures in the Bible, may we realize that even these creatures are, are meant there for your honor and your glory and to show us the great salvation we have in Jesus And we ask your blessing on Pastor Bob as he brings this word to us through the preaching of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I want to look at three things from this text this morning. First of all, the testing of Abraham. Secondly, the willingness of Abraham. Thirdly, the provision for Abraham. The testing, the willingness, and the provision. We know this is a test because God's Word tells us. Verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. Even as we read in the New Testament how oftentimes these tests of the Lord come in order that our faith might grow, in order that our faith might be encouraged, 
Not that God is wondering, I wonder if Abraham will serve me or not. God is sovereign. He knows the outcome of this before it even begins. The test is not provided for God's knowledge. The test is provided for Abraham. The reminder to us that in all things, God works to conform us to the glorious image of his son, Jesus Christ. In this particular case, the test takes the form of a command. A form of a command that makes us a little uncomfortable, a little bit awkward. We're we're trying to understand exactly what is going on here, but if we understand the fact that this is not held up as being, God doesn't know, he's wondering what's Abraham going to do. But God already knows. The Lord already knows what is going to take place. And he already knows that this is not going to be carried through to its full extent in terms of Isaac. So the command comes. Take Isaac. And if you recall all the background that comes to us, by the time we get to Genesis 22, all the background, all the baggage, all the problems that have been involved, but finally here is the promised heir, here is Isaac, and now comes the command. Take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. This is the command. But he's not to do it anywhere. He's not just to pick a spot that Abraham wants to do this on. God, as part of that command, also tells him a place. You are to go to the land of Moriah and on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, that is where the sacrifice is to be made. So God is directing Abraham to a very specific location, to a very specific place. This is not left up to Abraham. Abraham doesn't get to decide where this is happening. God is telling him, you need to go to the land of Moriah, to one of the mountains that I will show you. We learn a little bit later in the fourth verse of this passage that it's about a three-day journey. Everything about this passage you need, you need to underscore. That, 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 that's not just, huh, interesting. The journey from Beersheba, where Abraham is when he receives this command, to wherever this mountain is, isn't a four-day journey, isn't a two-day journey, isn't a six-day journey. It is a three-day journey. The significance of that number that plays itself out throughout Scripture, particularly in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, goes without saying. But it is directed by the Lord. He's going to bring him to a mountain, to a particular location, where a sacrifice is to be made of his only, as it were, son in the promised line, that son he is to sacrifice. After a three-day journey. This is the test. This is what God places before him. And it would appear as we read the test, the text that this is not something that is talked about or debated or Abraham takes a week or two weeks or a month to try to figure out. Notice verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. 
It's almost as if the text is saying as soon as possible, as soon as it was made sense, Abraham goes without a hesitation, without question, without delay, in full obedience. And that's where we find then the willingness of Abraham. What faith is on display here? We're pretty familiar with the passage. We know as we have read uh, even this morning as they begin this journey, as they reach this place that God has designated, as they're journeying up the mountain, the one who is the sacrifice asks the question, where is the sacrifice? Where is that which we're going to sacrifice? And then we read, look at with me at verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide. We know that that is an evidence of his faith. You say, how do we know that? Take your scriptures, turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Because, you know, from a human perspective, we may be saying, Abraham, why are you willing to do this? What are you doing? If Isaac is the promised heir, if Isaac is the one through whom God's promises are going to be fulfilled, why are you willing to sacrifice him? Because the author of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, tells us, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, what does that refer to? Genesis 22, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you remember what Abraham told the servants? We shall return. Even though he fully intended, and we know that from the text, right? Even the Lord says, yep, I know what you were going to do. I know you were going to follow through. But Abraham says to those servants, we will return. Now, if he's going to kill Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering, why does Abraham say, we will return? Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. Abraham's faith was such that he believed that even if he were to sacrifice Isaac, God would continue his promises through Isaac by raising Isaac from the dead. This is his faith in God. His trust in God is so strong that he believes God is able 
to raise from the dead his son that he just sacrificed. But the second aspect of his faith is that God will provide the offering. He trusts in God. He trusts in some way. God is going to make the provision. God will provide the sacrifice that is needed and is necessary. Why is Abraham willing? Because of his faith. He is willing to follow the commands of God even though the command of God does not necessarily in his mind or in our human minds sometimes make sense. Think of the application of that. This, God sometimes asks us to do things that in our own existence, in our way of thinking, don't make sense. Let me give you an example. Take up your cross and follow me. Does it make sense to take up one's cross, a burden, a problem, a difficulty of following Christ, a persecution? Most people in our world today say, no, I avoid anything like that. I want the easiest, simplest path there is. Yet God calls us not to the easy, simple path, but the hard and difficult path. To us humans, it doesn't make sense. But faith says, I will take the path that God calls me to take. Does it make sense to forgive 70 times 7? From a human point of view, all you got to do is go to Washington, D.C. and find out what the human point of view is, right? How does this work? Is there forgiveness? Never, right? How does our society function? As a principle of forgiveness or a principle of retribution and holding on and grudges? God calls us to forgiveness. Doesn't necessarily make sense to the human mind, but faith says, I will do that which God calls me to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does that make sense to most human beings in our human reasoning? No. But by faith, we look at it and say, God is calling me to this. It makes sense. Because it's God who's calling to me. I will live by that command. God calls us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In our society, does it make sense? Obviously not. Look at how our society and oftentimes how even we as Christians live. But faith says, I will live the way that God calls me to live. Abraham, by faith, obeyed God. And lest we think, well, Abraham really wasn't going to carry it through. No, that's not what the text tells us. Go with me to verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there. 
and laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He was going to do it. In fact, the text in Hebrew said he did it. Now, not in the sense that he brought down the knife, but his determination, his will, his obedience was such that he was going to carry it through. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. Had he not been stopped, Abraham would have done that which he was commanded to do. He was willing to fully carry out the command. I know there's a lot of questions about this one. You know, you, and, and once again, it gets us into the realm of, of questions that Scripture doesn't answer. But, you know, obviously, what about Isaac? How, how does Isaac allow himself to be bound? Well, there's that submission. There's the whole picture here of Christ, right? Of his willingness to do that which the Father calls him to do. Such is seen in Isaac. But notice how this ends. The, why does Abraham not bring the knife down? Why does Abraham not fulfill the command by literally killing his son. Because he stopped. He stopped, well, we're told, right? The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. In the Old Testament, that phrase, the angel of the Lord, is a term that is used over and over and over again to designate for us Christ. Christ himself calls out to Abraham. Don't lay your hand. I know, I know that you fear God. I know you were going to do it. The only thing that stops Abraham from this act is Christ and the voice of Christ calling out to him to stop. But now here comes the real brunt of the passage, right? This, this, this really is all the prelude. This is the build-up. This is what God's bringing it to. As Abraham stopped, the words of Abraham as he was walking up that mountain now come true. The Lord himself will provide the lamb. Here is the provision that God provides. A ram. A ram. Not a you. A ram. A male sheep that is caught by its head in the thicket. It has been wrapped around with some sort of bramble, with some sort of thicket wrapped around its head. Its head is stuck there. 
apparently either not observed by Abraham prior to this or in God's providence miraculously in some way placed there. But certainly we would say providentially by the hand of the Lord is this ram caught in the thicket. And notice what happens. Abraham takes that ram. If you're with me, verse 13. Abraham takes the ram, offered it as a burnt offering. And even as I read the passage, I wanted you to catch it. Instead of his son. Abraham sees this ram as the lamb that God would provide. He had said it. He believed it. Now it comes true. And this ram in the thicket that he now takes and offers as the sacrifice, he sees as the substitute. He sees as the replacement. He sees as the one that is giving its life in place of his son. That brings us then to what this passage truly is all about. This is prophetic. In literature, we might refer to it as foreshadowing, right? It's foreshadowing, one, the obedience of Christ, the submission of Christ. I referenced that just a few minutes ago in Isaac. There is no fighting. There is no... uh, kicking, screaming, there's no arguing. All we read of is a submissive Isaac. Even as Christ would declare, I have come to do the Father's will so that in me the Father might be glorified. The life and ministry of Christ, the death of Christ, is about, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When one of his disciples pulls out a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ's response is, put it away. I submit myself fully, completely to my Father's will. Not as I will, but as you will. He prays in the Garden. But there is more. There is the place. Now we might read this account and kind of pass by that and say, well, what's the significance of that? God just told them to go to Moriah, to one of the mountains, and that's it. Does it really matter? Yes, it really does matter. This place is brought forth again in Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, we have an account of David numbering the people of Israel. Not under the command of God, but in a prideful way. Because David numbers the people of Israel, particularly his troops, God comes and offers him and says, you've sinned, David through the prophet Gad, you've sinned. He gives them three choices as to what to do. The choice David takes 
is that the punishment will be a plague that goes throughout the land. I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to start at verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at God's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming up towards him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let the Lord my king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. That cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Now notice that happened at this place in Jerusalem, the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Now, you say, well, okay, what's the connection? Turn with me now to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on, what are the next words? Mount Moriah. What are we going to learn about Mount Moriah? Listen to the next phrase. Where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Oren the Jebusite. Where God stops the plague is where Solomon builds the temple. Where Solomon builds the temple is Mount Moriah, the place 
where God provides the lamb as the substitute sacrifice for Isaac. Where God provides his only son. What a picture. What a prophecy. What a foreshadowing this is. A Christ wearing a crown of thorns, a thicket upon his head. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There. There. God stops. beautiful picture of the substitution of Christ on our behalf. He offered the lamb instead of his son. The picture of Christ dying upon a cross for you, for I, substituting himself Mark chapter 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Titus 2, 13 and 14. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ, having been offered once for the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What a picture for us that God is providing of his son substituting himself for you and I. But there is more. The angel of the Lord speaks again and blesses Abraham at this point. And he blesses him by saying, Abraham, you're going to have descendants like the stars of the sea, like the, like the stars of the night, of the sky, and like the sand of the sea. You realize that's you and me? You realize that's us? We are that promised blessing. As God in His grace has worked within our hearts and lives to make us by faith 
the children of Abraham. What a glorious, beautiful picture of who we are. But did you hear in that blessing the change? The offspring first includes us and all of us. But then the angel of the Lord, Christ himself, comes back and narrows it down and says it's through me. Through me as the offspring. It is through me and through me alone that this blessing takes place. Go back to Genesis chapter 22. I will surely, verse 17, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Christ stormed. The enemy's stronghold. And it could not prevail against him. We who were in the clutches of Satan. We who were God's enemies. We who were the objects of his wrath. He so loved us before the foundations of the world that he sent forth the Lamb, his only son, to store the gate of the enemy that we might know by grace the blessing of being the children of God. That's what we celebrate here. That's the celebration. Oh, we're reminded of the cost we're reminded of the death. We're reminded of the hellish agony. But for a purpose, a glorious purpose, that we might be considered the children of God. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, for its reminder and truth to us this morning that you, have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Made possible, Father, not because you dismiss your justice, but because you carry forth your justice upon your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for us. And so we come to this table, Father, Thankfully, joyfully, knowing that here, Father, when we come by faith, you strengthen that faith so that we may live as your people in this world. In Christ's name, all God's people say, Amen.